all of the chapter together. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go. Return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Moah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then they arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Let's pray together. Father, now 
as we come to your word, we pray that you would give, uh, Father, words of comfort where they are needed. And that, Father, we know your word at times challenges us. It, it punches in ways that we cannot anticipate. And so we pray, uh, Lord, whether we need this morning to hear words of challenge or whether we need to hear words of comfort, we pray that your spirit would accompany the preaching of your word this day. For we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. While I was spending three years working overseas for a missions organization, I learned of our tendency, and this isn't just true of us as Americans, this is true of us as human beings, to read the Bible through our own set of cultural lenses and preconceptions. In other words, when we read the Bible, we tend to read it in a particularly a Western and American way. And so sitting around tables, drinking tea, and reading the word with good and godly men in both Africa and Asia helped me to begin to appreciate the ways in which I read the Bible through particularly Western lenses. Nowhere is our tendency to read the Bible in an American way more evident than in a chapter like our text for this morning. 1 Kings 19 is fertile soil for armchair therapists and counselors to try their hand at diagnosing the despondent prophet Elijah. Excuse me. In a therapeutic culture like ours, we want to apply our therapeutic grid to everything, particularly to the life of this prophet. But it isn't just in terms of wanting to read it therapeutically that we view, the, we view this text as particularly American and particularly Western. We also want to focus on what's going on with Elijah as an individual. And we miss what this text is saying about God's relationship to Israel. Friends, I want to suggest this morning that 1 Kings chapter 19 is, is in many ways a turning point in the Old Testament. You see, the way that God is going to relate to his people moving forward is different from what's gone on up to this point. This chapter is about more than simply us having a front row seat for the emotional dumpster fire that we perceive is Elijah's life. It is possible, as we will see, to be broken, but not psychotic. And since this chapter is not a guided tour for Elijah's going off the rails on the crazy train, the big idea this morning serves to help us understand what it is about. The big idea then is this, God is kind and gracious in his covenant dealings with his wayward people. God is kind and gracious in his covenant dealings with his wayward people. Four points we want to make this morning. The first one is this, Hebrew 101 or trust house and DRD. You're saying, well, what does that even mean? Well, when you go to seminary, you have to take Hebrew. In fact, in good seminaries, it is required 
And so the introductory Hebrew class is known as Hebrew 101. And in Hebrew 101, you begin to learn very basic verbs. And two of the most basic verbs that you will learn is the verb ra'ah, which is to see. And then also the verb ya'er, which is to fear or to be afraid. If we look at 1 Kings <coughs> chapter 19, verse 3, we see that there is a word there that gets translated fear. Now, without deep diving too much into really nerdy things about the textual remnants that we have from which we get our Bible, please note that there are two words that appear in different versions of manuscripts in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 3. In our Bibles, in the ESV, it's translated afraid. So in other words, the word ya'er is there. But there is another textual tradition in which the word is not to be afraid. The word is rather to see. Now, most commentators want to uh, hone in on, and they want to take the reading, excuse me, that says the word is to be afraid. But two of my heroes take a different view. A Paul House, who uh, married Amy and I and was my advisor in seminary in high school, or excuse me, high school, in college and in seminary. And then Dale Ralph Davis, who is sort of the Johnny Cash of Old Testament scholars within the PCA, both argue that the reading of to see is better in terms of helping us to understand rightly what's going on in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, it isn't just the argument of two scholars that I trust, but it's also what the rest of the Bible teaches us. Thank you, brother. The rest of the Bible uh, pictures Elijah not as an emotional dumpster fire, but instead Elijah is pictured as being the, the example of the Old Testament prophet. So that when the Bible speaks of the law and the prophets, it is Moses and Elijah who are held up as being the examples. In fact, think about in the New Testament. When Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, who is it that appears alongside him? It is Moses and it is Elijah. So ask yourself, if Elijah is a psychotic hot mess, why is he on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Jesus? And so the question before us is we're trying to understand what's going on in 1 Kings 19 is this. Is Elijah motivated by fear? Or is he discouraged that following the miraculous events of 1 Kings chapter 18, in reality, nothing has changed? Now, let's pause for a moment and just admit that both of those things are crippling. Living in constant chronic fear is crippling. Walking through life thinking that people fundamentally cannot change is 
I mean, what if you tried to live or to minister thinking that the people in your life that you love and care about, no matter what was going on, they simply couldn't change? Or the situation that you found yourself in, there's no way, it just can't change. You're just stuck. And what if the situation that confronts Elijah means that God's people have turned their back on the one who delivered them from bondage, the one who had made a covenant with them, the one who had uh, given them his law. And no matter how great and glorious a victory, Elijah thought that God had won at Mount Carmel. There are still people, people in power, who are dead set against the worship of God as Israel's covenant Lord. If you were confronted with that, would you not despair? If you were confronted with this great and glorious victory, and yet the very next morning what you hear is, I'm coming for you. And no one rose to your defense. No one said, no, 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 wait a minute. Hey, uh, maybe you didn't hear what happened. Where it was, uh, Baal's out, Yahweh's in. Sorry, Jezebel. You need to go back to where you came from. No, friends, I think that Paul House and Dale Ralph Davis and the variant reading and the various... Hebrew manuscripts are right. What's going on is not that Elijah fears for himself and therefore has this sort of psychotic episode. What's going on is that Elijah now sees the hard-heartedness of Israel and Israel's rulers, and he understands that after this great and wonderful thing that God has done, nothing has really changed. Now, one of the reasons it doesn't change is our second point. There are depths of insanity slash depravity that Elijah has not had to come up against yet. Look at verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Now, let's note that. And let's note who is left out of that description. After all, was it Elijah who sent fire down from heaven consuming everything that was there. No, be a neat party trick if he could. But it wasn't. You see, the victory at Mount Carmel was not Elijah's primarily. It was God's. And yet Ahab is so set against God, he's, he's such an adversary of God's that he cannot even bring himself to give God credit for what happened. And so he goes to his wife after Elijah has run in front of him for 16 miles. He gets home. He's sopping wet. And he says, he wouldn't believe what Elijah did. Reminds me of my younger siblings. Mom, you wouldn't believe what Kyle did now. Well, the same mindset is basically in play. Here's a spoiled child 
who can't even bring himself to acknowledge that Yahweh showed up in a powerful and mighty way. He can't even see God's hand in it. But it gets better. In verse 2, Jezebel comes and makes this threat to Elijah. So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Now, let's stop and think about that threat. On the one hand, we can see that Jezebel is very committed to Baal worship. She has had prophets of God killed in the past. She has stood beside her husband as a temple to Baal was built. And as a Baal was set up, she has led the way in leading God's people astray from the worship of the true and living God. But it's interesting that she would say, so may the gods do to me. In other words, here's what she's saying. Hey, Baal and Asherah, who I worship, uh, if I don't take you out, I pray that Baal and Asherah would take me out. Now, what do we know about the power of Baal and Asherah as of the last chapter? They don't have any. Nothing. These are the same gods, and I'll use quotation marks there, small g. These are the same gods who stood by and did not answer the 400 prophets of Baal as they cut themselves, as they cried out, as they walked and limped around the altar to Baal for literally hours. These are the same gods who stood by while Elijah and the people of Israel took not just the prophets of Baal, but also the prophets of Asherah, 850 in total, took them down to the brook and watched them get slaughtered. And yet, here's Jezebel saying to Elijah, may Baal and Asherah do to me what you did to the prophets if I don't make you by them. Friends, like, that's just nuts. Why would you swear by gods who have been shown to be completely phony and a hoax? Who embraces that kind of insanity? Well, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1 that all of us embrace that kind of insanity. That apart from the work of God's Spirit, we all look at the world around us, and instead of worshiping the Creator, we worship the created stuff. But as Paul says, we refuse to acknowledge God. We refuse to give Him credit as the Creator. Now, those two things are bad, but here's the other really crazy thing. You know what else doesn't get mentioned in these first two verses? Oh yeah, by the way, it's raining. It hasn't rained for three and a half years. Ahab has to send parties of men out. We read about it in chapter 18. He's got to send parties of people out to see if they can find water so the livestock doesn't die. All of a sudden, here's this torrential deluge and nothing is said about it. They cannot acknowledge God. They cannot acknowledge God's prophet. 
they remain committed to the worship of these gods who have been shown to be nothing. And they cannot even mention this good gift of God in sending rain. And friends, the really frightening thing is, yes, it's true for Ahab and Jezebel, but it's true for us as well. Our, the New Testament reading that Jenny read for us is really instructive at this point. Luke tells us that Lydia was not some sort of pagan queen committed to idolatry, but rather she was a God-fearer. She's gathered each week at a place of worship, at a place of prayer. And yet Luke tells us specifically that it, the Lord had to open her heart to pay attention to what Paul had to say. You see, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we would, like Ahab and Jezebel, ignore God and live our lives in rebellion against Him and live our lives as though He did not even exist. Now, the really sad thing and the really tragic thing and the thing that we can't overlook is that this is the leadership of Israel. This is the king and queen of a nation that has always understood themselves to be in a covenant relationship with God. And that same leadership cannot even acknowledge God's existence. That same leadership is swearing by God's whom Yahweh has shown to be completely false and phony. And so in light of that, it should not surprise us that Elijah decides to hop on the first bus out of town. Elijah is making God's case to God's people. Elijah is the means that God uses to bring fire down and to show conclusively that he alone is God. And yet the leadership of the nation of Israel is so committed to not God that Elijah understands Now, I mention this also not just because it helps us understand our own spiritual situation, but I hope it's going to help us in the coming weeks and in the coming months about all of the discourse we're going to hear if Roe versus Wade is actually overturned. We're going to hear craziness. We're going to hear stuff that is the absolute height of insanity as people who are told they can no longer murder unborn children, try to make the case as to why it's a moral good to be able to murder unborn children. It's already started. And the tendency and the temptation is for us, we're going to sit back, and we're going to want to trade blows with these people. But let's just understand, uh, friends, they are completely, like, it is insanity. There's a wonderful saying in Kentucky. Never get in a spraying match with a skunk. The same will apply in the coming weeks and in the coming months. Friends, trying to argue for the right to someone to end the life of an unborn child is utter insanity. Don't be surprised when the argument is made and don't think, just like Jezebel could not be reasoned with, don't think these folks are going to respond to reason. 
not. See, being able to see and acknowledge God's work, God's presence in the world that he created is entirely due to the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't be shocked. And don't think that somehow you're going to argue folks into the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't make a case. We still bear faithful witness. But don't be surprised when it happens. And don't be shocked that people are espousing and spouting this kind of insanity. Thirdly, Part of understanding this text rightly is about vocation, vocation, vocation. So uh, Elijah decides uh, it's really not good for me to be uh, in Jezreel anymore. I need to get out of town, and I need to get out of town quickly. And so he heads out south. He goes to what is basically the Dixie of Israel. He goes to Beersheba. And in Beersheba, which was a day's travel away, he left his servant there. And then he keeps going. He goes into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness here is informative because that's where the nation of Israel came from. As they left Egypt and came into the promised land, they had to travel through the wilderness. So immediately, we should be having in our minds, uh, the writer of 1 Kings wants us to know very subtly that this is somehow about God's covenant with his people. And we're going to know it even more by the time we get to verse 8. When, he, when God's angel tells him, when the angel of the Lord tells him, hey, you need to go to Horeb, the Mount of God. Now Horeb, just to remind us, is the place where, uh, where God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. So we know where Elijah is going. And we know that God is tending to his needs supernaturally as he travels there. And we're told that it is a 40-day, 40-night journey. Which again, the writer of 1 Kings is trying to prick our memory and go, hey, 40 days, 40 nights, that's important. It's important because that's, again, reminding us of Moses as Moses goes to the top of Mount Horeb. It's also later going to remind us of Jesus. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. So what's going on here is about covenant. This is not about Elijah losing his mind. This is not about Elijah having uh, somehow distressed visions of self-importance that didn't come true. And so he just loses it. No, this is about God calling his prophet to go to the place where the covenant was originally made because there is new covenant business to be done. And what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is that immediately upon reaching Horeb, the word of the Lord comes to him. Did you notice that in verse 9? There at Mount Horeb, he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came. Again, this is not Elijah just off his rocker. This is God calling his prophet to a place because there is covenant business to be done. And so the word comes to him. And he asks him this telling question. 
And we need to understand, again, this is not God somehow acting as a divine therapist for a guy who's off his nut. No, this is a covenant hearing. God is not acting as a therapist. God is acting as a judge. He's acting as the one, the sovereign who made the covenant. And so he asked the question, verse 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, what's interesting to me is that in verse 10, Elijah doesn't say, uh, your angel told me to come here. But no, he's now, Elijah understands what's going on. This is a covenant hearing. This is the one who made the covenant, asking his emissary, what's going on in terms of the covenant with these people that I, that, that I, I made this covenant with them? How's it going? And so he says, what are you doing here? Here's Elijah. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, this is the point in which folks who want to argue that this text is really about Elijah not being in a good headspace. This is the stuff they want to point to and go, see, he thinks he's alone. And in chapter 18, Obadiah came to him, and Elijah knows that Obadiah is a faithful servant of God. And Obadiah has told him, hey, Elijah, uh, I've been keeping two groups of 50 prophets alive. Jezebel wants to kill them, and I've been hiding them. So Elijah knows he's not, in that sense, he's not alone. But again, here's where we know this is about the covenant. Not just because he mentions that they've forsaken the covenant, but in that great showdown on Mount Carmel, when there are 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah uh, lined up against him, how many prophets of Yahweh were there to make Yahweh's case? One. Was Obadiah there? Listen, he's got a book of the Bible named after him, so I got nothing but love for Obadiah, but he wasn't there. Did the hundred prophets of Yahweh who'd been hiding in the cave, did they decide, dude, this is it. This is the showdown at the OK Corral. We need to ride on in and let Elijah know that he's not alone. I mean, it's it's still going to be 850 to 100, but, you know, God's done better with worse odds than this. No. No, there's only one individual willing to stand as God's prophet in front of God's people declaring God's word and God's glory and God's majesty over and against a hostile king and over and against 850 prophets of false gods. And that's Elijah. And now, now, as he says, they seek my life to take it away. And I love what God does next. And I love it because it's a really God thing to do. I love it because it's cool, but when he does it to me, I hate it. God says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And then there are these two great, wonderful, powerful, awful, hard-to-miss, awesome things that happen. And what does the tell us, text tell us? about both of those amazing occurrences 
but the Lord was not in them. Instead, the Lord is in the sound of the low whisper. See, when stuff happens in our lives, we immediately say to God, God, I need something really awesome and obvious. I need everybody to know at the very least that you're on my side. I need you to vindicate me in this really wonderful, awesome, public way. I'm not saying you have to burn those who are against me down to the ground, but I wouldn't be opposed to it. But God doesn't work the way we think that he should. No, God's ways are hidden. And God speaks to us, not in these awesome, powerful ways, but as we see with the prophet, it's the voice of a low whisper. God's word, God's ways, God's dealing with his people are sometimes very hidden and very subtle. And if we're not careful, we will miss it. Friends, this is not a text about Elijah cracking up. This text is a turning point for Israel in the history of the Old Testament. It's a text about God in His grace and in His mercy moving away from His people. And the ministry of Elisha, did you note, he says, now I've got three things I want you to go do. And we're going to get to them in just a second. But the ministry of Elisha is going to be notable for its influence, not among the Israelites, but among the Gentiles. And God's prophets to the extent in which they're going to speak to God's people, they're going to be making God's case against the people. Now the good news is they're going to be giving them a chance to repent. The bad news is they're not going to. Friends, that's why we should be so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the kind of judgment that's pictured and the kind of judgment that's promised and the kind of judgments that's coming because God's people are wayward, because God's people are forgetful, because God's people are just ridiculous. Friends, all of that has been taken upon Jesus Christ himself. And so now, when the Lord looks at you and me, he doesn't see how much like the silly, ridiculous, uh, just insane Israelites we are. No, what he sees is he sees only the perfect obedience and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Jesus' words to Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, those verses that we all learned in Sunday school, particularly the first one, John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then Jesus continues words that would have knocked Nicodemus over. For God did not send His Son into the world to do what? To condemn it. But rather that the world would be saved through Him. That brings us then to the fourth and final point. 
God's not done. 1 Kings 19 represents a change in the relationship. But God isn't done. He's not done with Elijah, and he's not done with Israel. Though in an exciting way, what's going to happen is that God's covenant purposes and intentions, as we're going to see, are going to go beyond Israel. They're going to go beyond Judah. God's planned covenant and God's work of redemption is greater than the 12 tribes. It's going to extend to all of the earth. And so he says to him first, here's what I want you to do when you go home, verse 15. Go by the wilderness of Damascus. Now the interesting thing about this is, at this point, Syria and Israel, are they are sworn enemies. And so here's God saying to Elijah, hey, you think it's bad at home? I want you to go to the capital city of your sworn enemy. And I want you there to anoint a guy who's not the king as the new king of Samaria or of Syria. Huh. Thanks, God. That's going to go well. You know, the current king is probably not going to be very happy when he hears that a foreign prophet of a God he does not acknowledge shows up to anoint a king who's not him. But he gets to do that twice. For he gets to anoint someone who's not named Ahab as king over Israel. Again, someone who will not acknowledge the existence of God, who has no time or use for God's prophet, who's not going to be very happy with the fact that God's prophet is anointing someone to be king who's not him. And then he's going to go on. And I want you to go to Elisha. And I want you to anoint him to be a prophet in your place. Because judgment is coming. That's, verses, that's verse 17. I'm going to judge the sin of my people. I'm going to do it with the sword. And yet, he says in verse 18, I still have a remnant. I still have a people for myself of people who have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so he goes and he does what God calls him to do. He finds Elisha and he anoints him. And Elisha then, in the spirit of Elijah, comes and assists him. God has a new work that he's doing. This work of covenant redemption is not just for Israel and Judah, but it's for the nations. And so this new prophet, this man named Elisha, is going to have an influence among the Gentiles. Think about Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5, healed of his leprosy. And as Jesus reminds his listeners, do you think Naaman was the only leper in the days of Israel? Last week, Tag reminded us that the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are sensible seals and signs. The question then is, sensible to whom? Well, friends, the only way this table makes any sense to us at all is the same way, the only way that the Word of God makes any sense to us at all, and that's namely through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when we fence the table, when we say every week that if you're not a baptized follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this table is not for you, 
we're really only acknowledging this reality. See, if you've not been enlivened by the Holy Spirit, then the table really doesn't make any sense. And we're just helping you by not allowing you to eat and drink judgment on yourself by saying, yes, I have a part of a God in which in reality you want nothing to do with him. But the table also reminds us that thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not find ourselves in the same boat as Israel. No, the table, the fundamental declaration of the table is I am your God and you are my people. I've put my spirit within you. I've taken out the heart of stone and I've given you a heart of flesh. And when I look at you, I don't see your rebellion. I don't see your sin. I don't see your insanity. I don't see how ridiculous you are. I don't see the fact that when I send the rain, you can't even acknowledge it. No, instead I see the perfect love and obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am your God, and you are my people. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for uh, the hope that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that even though we, we know you care about us as individuals and we know that you care about our mental health and uh, we're not trying to diminish any of those things, but Father, we thank you also uh, that you've called us as individuals to be a part of a people. A people who you show grace and mercy to in spite of our waywardness. And again, that's not because of anything we've done. Rather, it's because of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things now in his name. Amen.